Well, I'm going to get into my, my talk on St. Patrick. So we're going to pick up with the fall of Rome. And so Rome was the biggest empire that the planet had ever seen. And they had all these cities all around North Africa and the Middle East and then in Europe. And they were building great aqueducts and great achievements. And, and then they expanded and empires go through three stages. They go through the uh, expanding phase and then the mature uh, this far and no further phase and then the dying phase. So like a plant, a little bitty plant, a seed and sapling, and then it grows and it's mature, bearing fruit, and then it's dying. <laughs> anyway, so as Rome is expanding, it's living off of the wealth of the people that it conquers. And they're bringing the Slavs, like these were you know, Julius Caesar conquering in Gaul, and he bring the Slavs. These were European peoples. Land where you get Yugoslav, Czechoslav, Slovenia, Slovakia, the Slavs. Caesar captured so many of them, brought them back to Rome and gave them away as permanent servants. So the name Slav got the connotation of a permanent servant. That's, we pronounce it a little different today, slave. That's where the word came from. And anyway, uh, so it keeps expanding, living off of conquered peoples. And then finally, Hadrian builds the Great Wall of China. You know Hadrian because he like took all the wealth from Israel and brought it to Rome. And then they uh, ha actually had a um, revolt where he killed every descendant of David. All right. And destroyed the scriptures, everyone that he could find and renamed the, the Holy Land, Syria, Palestina. That's where that word came from. They turned the Capitol Hill where the temple was to Capitolina, Jupiter or whatever. Anyway, so now that Rome built Hadrian's Wall this far and no further, they had to live within their means. They got in debt. And uh, so debt always precedes the destruction of a civilization. And then they begin to get overrun. Uh, so then the emperors didn't uh, want people to know that they were being overrun. So they would give away free bread. Uh, it was their welfare program. So the whole city of Rome was on welfare. They called it the bread of the circus, the dole, D-O-L-E. So they would give away free bread and free food. And um, uh, there's the stacks of the bread and they would give it away. And uh, then they, um, here's Juvenal was a historian. Now that no one buys our votes, the public has long since cast off its cares. The people that once bestowed commands, consulships, legions, and all else now meddles no more with uh, and longs eager, eagerly for just two things, bread and games, or bread and the circus. But it was the Circus Maximus where they'd have those races and so forth. In other words, people wanted free stuff and they wanted violent entertainment. Wow. Right? They wanted to have all kinds of free government handouts and they wanted to sit there and watch violent entertainment in the Colosseums where they would fight to the death. They'd like these bloody spectacles of killing. And, um, and there's the Colosseum. Uh, did you know that they built the Colosseum from the gold they stole from the temple in Jerusalem? Yeah, right. right. The Arch of Titus and so forth. And so human life was of little value. And uh, anyway, there's Nero. And then they um, Julius Caesar noticed that uh, the women that is a trend. Um, Will and Ariel Durant wrote a history of the world. And they said, as civilizations become more advanced, Women wait longer to have children and have fewer of them. And the less advanced civilizations, they begin to have children sooner and they have more of them. So it's just a matter of time till the less civilized overrun the more civilized. And it's a trend that you see in history. And so Julius Caesar saw this. 
that as the Rome was getting wealthier, the women were waiting longer to have kids and have, and the whole lot of these, these uh, people groups that were coming into Rome uh, were having lots of kids. And so Caesar decided that the women that did not have children were not allowed to ride in these fancy carriages. They weren't called carriages. They were, you know, something else, but they had to have the slaves that would carry them around. And, um, and so then they had their version of abortion. It was called exposure of unwanted infants. And so the mother would bear the child and lay it at the father's feet. If the father picked it up and liked it, they got to keep it. If the father thought, ah, it looks a little sickly or we can't afford it, the mother would have to expose, get rid of the child. She'd have to expose it. And so they would, you know, put the little baby in a basket out in the woods and give these very tearful last goodbyes to the baby. And the Christians would condemn it. Now, this was the Roman practice. Rome, the legendary founding, was two abandoned boys, Romulus and Remus. And uh, if it wasn't for a wolf that came by and nursed the boys, they would have died. And so um, anyway, so this was their version of abortion. And so you read the Christians condemning exposure of unwanted infants. The sermons sound exactly like the pro-life sermons today. The Christians have always stood up for the life of the innocent child. And then they had a whole lot of immorality. Uh, they had uh, gymnasiums. You think, what's wrong with a gymnasium? Well, gym is the Greek word for naked. So a gymnasium was where a bunch of naked men ran around and they had all kinds of sexual immorality. Uh, I went to school for six months in college in Rome and we would tour the ruins and they would actually have the, the bathhouses, and then underneath was where the slaves would stoke the fires to keep the, the, the jacuzzis bubbling, right? And so there's like the Roman bathhouses, but a whole lot of sexual immorality. And, um, and so there's like, you know, all the sensualism that the Romans had, and they had sex trafficking. And they would have slaves, but they would also do the, the immoral sex trafficking. Uh, a lot of slavery, and, uh, and the church withdrew from politics. So there was this movement that is a little, little history. So for the first 300 years of Christianity, there are 10 major persecutions. Christians are thrown to the lions, and Christians would have church in catacombs. These were like caves down in the ground built into the hillside. And so we're, you know, touring Rome because I was going to school there. And you got the tour guide. And you're going through, you know, a little road outside of the Vatican or whatever. And it looks like a little drainage ditch with a little <laughs> gate. And uh, the, the tour guide goes up and unlocks it. And you got to crouch down and you got to crawl back like 30 yards. And it opens up into a room that's like 30 feet. And so, you know, you can touch the ceiling. It has all these candle and torch marks on the ceiling and all this first century Christian graffiti around the walls, right? And the little hallways and tunnels that go off. That was the Christian experience for three centuries. Constantinople, a Roman city, they would have all these caves and tunnels that would go all underground and they would have them where they would get narrower and narrower so only one person could go through, right? And then on the other side, they would have a stone that could roll across so in case the soldiers are chasing them down there, they'd have to go through one by one, but then they would... And it wasn't until a couple centuries the Romans found out where the air holes were. And then they decided to smoke them out and so forth. But that was the Christian experience. And um, you would, they'd capture you. And, and so the, the church, with, so, so, so the situation. Uh, Constantine uh, stops the persecution of Christians around 313 A.D. And that's the great. 
We get to come out of the catacombs. And then Constantine says, okay, I'm going to build the first basilica. It's a big cathedral. It's all marble. And so these next generation of Christians, the little kids are growing up in a big marble basilica. And then 379 AD, you get a Roman emperor, Theodosius, and he outlaws paganism. Right? He's a Christian Roman emperor going to church in Milan, Italy. The pastor is St. Ambrose. Right? Could you imagine being St. Ambrose and having the Roman emperor in your church on Sunday? And so sure, the message is, well, you know, use your position in life for righteousness. And so Theodosius says, okay, there's this area in Greece where they're still doing, you know, pagan sacrifice and temple prostitutes and exposure of unwanted infants. I'm going to send my army in there and stop them. Well, they didn't want to give up their paganism. And he went in there and killed a bunch of them. And, uh, and so there's a famous painting of Ambrose rebuking the emperor, saying that's not the way you spread Christianity. <laughs> but nevertheless, Theodosius, for all practical purposes, outlawed paganism. So what happened? You had a whole bunch of pagans flooding into the marble basilica. Then uh, and the, during this time, you had heresies, right? So the the first three centuries, you didn't live long enough to argue over doctrine. But then the first heresy starts. It's called Arianism. A guy named Arius said Jesus was a little less than God the Father. He was a created being. And Arius made a catchy song. And so a whole lot of these Visigoths, who were a people group coming into Rome, they converted to, Arian, to this Arianism. And it begins to split the church. And Constantine's like, I don't understand doctrine. All you bishops get together to the consul in Nicaea and settle this thing because your church split is having fallout by impacting my empire. And so they settle it. They write the Nicene Creed. Uh, then there's another heresy. They have another consul and they settle it. Another heresy, another consul, they settle another heresy. Till pretty soon you have the official state doctrine. And so you have these pagans flooding into the church saying, OK, whatever the state doctrine is, fine. And they really didn't have a heart change. Right. And so you begin to see that. Um, so a movement starts called pietism that says, look, being a Christian is more than just state doctrine. You have to have an experience with Jesus when you do your life will change and you won't get involved in worldly things like bars and brothels and lewd theater and get involved in government. What was that last thing? Yeah, government's filled full of worldly people. You're not going to get involved. And so this pietism was good on the one side because it caused you to have a personal relationship with God. But on the other side, it was a withdrawal. And so what happened was you'd get people that would really, truly become Christian. And they were told, OK, you're a real Christian. you got to go out and live in a cave and be a hermit or join a monastery and maybe even a monastery where you don't talk to anybody. And, and right, you know, and so this would be the Christians would give away their money. And there's the story of St. Nicholas. He was in Greece. Right. And he got saved. He gives away all his money. But he wanted to do it anonymously because he wanted God to get the credit. And so he'd sneak and throw money in the window of poor people. And that became the tradition of gift giving on the anniversary of Nicholas's death. And I wrote a whole book on that. But anyway, but this idea was that the Christians would withdraw from the Roman culture. And that didn't help anything. Uh, and then the high taxes. And so you had the government taxing more and more. Matter of fact, um, people would just run away. They would have debts on their property and they would not be able to pay it. And with the inflation, they would just leave their mortgage 
and just go off and live among the barbarians. And Diocletian said, "Uh, uh-uh, no more. You have to stay tied to your property until it's paid off. Well, with all the inflation, you never get it paid off. And then your kids inherit the debt and their kids and their kids. And this turns into the feudal system of the Middle Ages for a thousand years. People tied to the land. And um, then the tax collector would be the lord of the area. And um, anyway, and then the Romans debased their currency. They had silver coins, but they found out you could mix in some other metals that were cheaper. They did that with gold coins, too. Uh, Now, pure gold is a little malleable which means you could take a pure gold coin and bite down on it and your teeth would impress it. Remember the, the old pirate movies? You know, pieces of Spanish, pieces of eight. And they go, is it really gold? They go, oh, and they bite. What are they biting a coin for? If you could poke your teeth into it a little bit, that meant it was pure gold. But if you mix in some of the fake metals, right, then it gets harder. And, and so the Romans would debase their currency. And um, they would even trim the little sides off it. And uh, so... That's why, you know, on a quarter, it has all those little lines around the side. Well, that was an invention that they did because you could tell if somebody's trimming the sides off the coin. And, um, and then you had all of the illegal immigrants flooding into the Roman Empire. And they would bring their own language. And so you got the Ostrogoths and the Visigoths and the Anglos and the Saxons and the Jutes and the Lombards and the Berbers and all these different tribes are flooding over. And... Um, and they're mixing their language with a little bit of the Latin language. So they call them Romance languages, not because they kissed, but because they had a Roman root. And so German, French, Romanian, Spanish. And uh, uh, the, um, and now, now, um, let's see, there's a lot of political divisions going on in Rome. And their military was cut back because of uh, all the frontiers being invaded. So they'd have to pull their legions back from, from the frontiers. And um, uh, they outsourced all their grain production to North Africa. So it was a fertile grain area. And uh, so it was sort of like we outsourced everything to China, maybe China and India, and so we have to bring it back in. But what happens if China cuts off their ships and they're sending everything over? Well, that's what happened with Rome. They outsourced it, and uh, China begins to build the Great Wall of China. What does that have to do with the Roman Empire? Well, the Huns. They were a Mongolian-type people, and they would raid into China. And when the Chinese began to build the Great Wall of China, it took them centuries, and they'd build pieces here and there. But around the 2nd century A.D., they completed large parts of it. And so this made it more difficult for the Huns to to attack east, so the Huns turned west. And it started a domino effect of displaced tribes across Central Asia that spilled over the Roman borders. And so those were all of these different people groups that I mentioned, right? The Huns and the Vandals. You know what the Vandals did? That was the name of a tribe. You know what they did when they went through town? So so they had their their open borders situation. Um, And uh, then they began to have terrorist attacks. So weakness invites aggression. It's sort of one of the standards of the laws of nature. And it's not just with lions chasing zebras or sharks attacking a distressed animal in the water. It happens nationally and internationally with politics. So if one nation senses that another nation is weaker, they're tempted to. And so you begin to have terrorist attacks. 
uh, into Rome and Attila the Hun. And so you see, um, there's Attila. He had an army of a half a million men. And they would wipe out cities across Europe. The Christians in that day thought he was the Antichrist. And certainly he he had the spirit of Antichrist. But here, these Huns attack. and, uh, And they had these composite bows. So the English have long bows that are like six feet tall, and they can shoot like 300 yards. Well, the Mongols had a composite bow, a curved bow, which could shoot the same distance, but it was only a third of the size, so you could shoot it on horseback. And so they would have an army of, you know, 100,000 of them, and they could shoot from a distance, and the other people, they couldn't even reach them. And so they were conquering. And um, look how big this, this Hunnic empire was. And, uh, and so they began to attack into all these cities in Europe, and... Uh, They'd literally wipe out Cologne and Mainz and Worms and Strasbourg and Tyr. And um, have you ever heard of the city of Venice, Italy? Well, there was a city just north of it called Aeola and Aeolia, and it was the ninth largest city in Europe, and it was right on the coast. And when Attila came, he like set up a palace and he it destroyed the whole city of Aeolia. And what happened is the people ran out into the ocean. And you know how you've ever been to the ocean and, and it's sandy and shallow, and you can be 100 yards out and it only comes up to your waist. That's sort of the way it was with Venice. And so people would go way out into the water and hammer logs down. And then they would build, they'd they'd live on little platforms. And so Attila's army couldn't get to them. And that hammering of logs down kept growing, growing, and that grew into the city of Venice. So Venice started to get away from Attila the Hun. But here you see him conquering, 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 conquering. And what happened to Paris? It was skipped because there was a woman named Genevieve and she got all of Paris to fast and pray. And for some reason, Attila skipped sacking Paris. So she is considered the patron saint of Paris, Saint Genevieve. And then Attila is going to attack Rome. And it's around 453 A.D. And the story is that the Pope went out there to try to talk him out of not attacking Rome, and he turned and left. And the story is that uh, Attila saw angels above the Pope's head uh, with swords in their hand. And so that scared him away. And, of course, this was um, even part of the... uh, So there's Attila, here's the Pope, and then there's the angels. Here's even a church wall. So there's the Pope, he's pointing at the angels with the swords, and there's Attila there. And... um, but it only bought Rome 20 years because 20 years later, 476 AD, the Visigoths came and they did sack Rome. And uh, so while this is going on, Rome has to pull its legions back from the frontiers. And one of the frontiers was Britain. And so uh, when imagine waking up one day and there's no police. Everything's fine for a little while. And then people start robbing the stores and they don't get in trouble for it. And then they rob more stores and then they start going down the streets and robbing houses. And then they don't just rob, they kidnap and carry kids away. And lo and behold, that's what happened to Patrick. He was around 16 years old, the, born around 389 AD. We're not exactly sure. And around anywhere from 405 to 411 AD is when he was captured. And he was uh, a young boy, and these marauding bands came up and captured him and a bunch of others and took him away to Ireland and sold them to the Druids. 
Now, the Druids controlled Ireland. That, that's where Halloween came from. The Druids believed that the woods were filled full of spirits that always needed to be appeased. And you would have to leave a sacrifice or a treat or you would get tricked. Something bad would happen. This is your typical animism. So you go to Africa and say, well, there's parts of the jungle, there's spirits in this part and you got to appease them. Or, you know, Japan, they would have little neighborhood pagoda type things. People put a slice of an orange in there to appease the little neighborhood God. Or the American Indians, all oh, the parts of the woods here, there's spirits there. And it's your typical pagan. Well, that's the way it was in Ireland. And a couple of years ago, they were like digging for, for a parking lot and they found a body that was pushed in a bog the black, mucky stuff, the swamps, you know, and, uh, and there was no wound on it. The person had just been tied, and they were pushed in, and their skin was like leather, you know, but they were, they were sacrificed. They'd push them in. So the, the, the trick-or-treat, the, the, it was a little more serious than we try to make out. So here's Patrick. He's now a slave in Druid, Ireland. I mean, talking about sending your kids away to a pagan college. <laughs> Here he is in a pagan country. And um, so Ireland is a little bit far away from Britain, right? And um, Patrick writes in his confession. Now, what's his confession? After his entire ministry, uh, there are some people in Britain that said, I remember when he was a young boy and he'd said that he didn't believe in God. And uh, you know, sort of like Bill Gates when he goes to a high school, nobody paid attention to him because he was like a nerd. But then when he becomes a billionaire, it's like, oh, yeah, Bill, yeah, we were good friends. We were... And so, so here's Patrick. Uh, nobody paid attention to him. But now that he is this minister and he's done this great stuff, people, I remember him. I remember him. Somebody says, I remember he told me that he didn't believe in God and he told me this or that or the other. And so the church leaders in Britain call him back for a little sit-down investigation church talk, right? He refuses to go. He said, God called me to Ireland. I'm going to die in Ireland. I'm going to write my confession, my life story, and send it. So in one sense, had they not accused him, he never would have written his life story down and we wouldn't have had it. Sort of like the Apostle Paul would not have written all the letters in the New Testament had he not been thrown in jail. So sometimes God uses what was intended for bad for good. So here's what he writes in his confession. I was then about 16 years of age. I did not know the true God. I was taken into captivity to Ireland with many thousands of people, and deservedly so because we turned away from God and did not keep his commandments. So there's the Druids in those woods. And he said he had the 10 sheep. He goes, but after I came to Ireland every day, I had the 10 sheep, and many times a day I prayed. The love of God and his fear came to me more and more, and my faith was strengthened. And my spirit was so moved that in a single day, I would say as many as 100 prayers and almost as many at night. And this even when I was staying in the woods and on the mountains, I used to get up for prayer before daylight, through snow, through frost, through rain. I felt no harm. There was no sloth in me, as I now see, because the spirit within me was then fervent. And so he goes on. He says, and one night in my sleep, I heard a voice saying to me, it is well that you fast. Soon you will go to your own country. And again, after a short while, I heard a voice saying, see, your ship is ready. And it was not near, but at a distance of perhaps 200 miles. And I took flight. Now, the penalty for leaving your, leaving your master is getting killed if you're caught. So it was a risk. He says, I went in the strength of God who directed my way to my good. And I feared nothing until I came to that ship. Well, there was a ship taking wolfhounds and putting it on them to take to Europe to sell as hunting dogs. 
And the guy said, well, if the dogs will mind you, you can come along. And so he comes along. Well, the ship is caught in a storm, and it crashes at southern France, Gaul, in an area where the Visigoths had just came through and there was no food. And so the head of the, the captain said, uh, say, uh, you know, Christian, you, you say that your God is real. Uh, why don't you pray and, and get us some food? And he says a prayer. And when he finishes the prayer, a herd of pigs runs right across the road in front of him. They kill the pigs, they eat, and they have a barbecue. Anyway, uh, he's with them, and then he notices that this captain is thinking of enslaving him. Like, you know, hey, he's, he's, we can get some answered prayers. And uh, Patrick says, when the Lord told me that after 28 days I would be free from them. And sure enough, after 28 days he got free. And so he hitchhikes his way across Europe, and this is in the early 400s, and he finally gets back to Britain, and he's there until he's 40 years old. And he has a dream. He says, in the depth of the night, I saw a man named Victoricus coming as if from Ireland with innumerable letters. And he gave one of these, and I read the heading of the letter, which ran the cry of the Irish. And while I was reading, I thought I heard the voice of those who were beside the wood of Folkloth near the Western Sea call out, please, holy boy, come and walk among us again. Their cry pierced to my very heart. I could read no more, so I awoke. Well, he took this as a call from God that he's supposed to go back to Ireland as a missionary. Sort of like the Apostle Paul had a dream of a guy in Macedonia saying, come over here. And so he went and he says goodbye to his family. And he and a dozen or half a dozen guys go over to Ireland. And he lands and he goes back to the chief's, the, the house where he was a slave. And it was burnt out because of a war with a neighboring tribe. So had he not escaped, there's a good chance he would have gotten killed. Anyway, then he makes his way to the chieftain. And so you had about 30 different chieftains across Northern Ireland, and there were Druids who were the religious, superstitious type people. And um, Patrick walks in there, he's totally unarmed, and he begins to pro boldly proclaim the gospel to them in their own language, which he had learned when he was a slave. This would be like you going to the downtown inner city and going right into the smoky den of the drug dealer's place, right? Just walking right in there with all of their guns and knives and everything. And so here's Patrick, and he proclaims the gospel in their own language, which he had learned way back when he was a teenager when he was kidnapped. Now, the Druids, when he starts explaining his religion, the Druids are like, uh, wait a second, this new religion is going to displace us from our influence over the king. And so they immediately want to kill Patrick. But the king says, what's the hurry to kill him? He's not armed. You know, he's not a threat to us, and we really don't get visitors that often. <laughs> he's pretty, and so the king ends up getting fascinated with him. The king ends up converting, and he gives Patrick the, his first plot of land where he builds his first church. But um, Patrick's style of evangelism was top-down. He would go to these 30 different chieftains and boldly confront them with the gospel. And um, so here he is confronting the Druids and so forth, and, and there he is confronting the different kings. And, um, and then he says this, And another night, whether within me or beside me, I know not, God knoweth, 
They called me most unmistakably with words which I heard but could not understand, except at the end of the prayer he spoke thus, He that has laid down his life for thee, it is he that speaketh in thee. So I awoke full of joy. And again I saw him praying in me, and I was, as it were, within my body, and I heard him above me, that is, over the inward man, and there he prayed mightily with groanings, and all the time I was astonished and wondered and thought within myself, who could it be that prayed in me? But at the end of the prayer, he spoke saying that he was the Spirit. And so I woke up and remembered the apostle saying, the Spirit helpeth the infirmities of our prayer. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself asks for us with unspeakable groanings which cannot be expressed in words. And again, the Lord, our advocate, asketh for us. So it sounds like he was filled with the Holy Spirit. (laughs) So here he is boldly confronting these Druids and presenting the gospel. And there's lots of stories. And um, they tried to kill him at least a dozen times. They would lay traps for him. They lay ambushes for him. One time he's walking through a valley that's really narrow. And the chieftain had a bunch of soldiers and they're ready to jump out and kill him. And they wait and wait. And all day long, all they see that goes by is a deer. Yet the next day, Patrick's on the other side of the valley. And so one of Patrick's prayers is called the deer's cry. And um, so he says, daily I expect murder, fraud, or captivity, whatever it may be. But I fear none of these things because of the promises of heaven. I have cast myself into the hands of God Almighty who rules everywhere. As the prophet says, cast thy thought upon thee and he shall sustain thee. And so one of the chieftains, would make everyone extinguish their fires and then come and bring a present or a goat to the Druids to get some coals to relight their fire for the next year. And it just happened to be, oh, and it was, and anyone who did not extinguish their fires would get killed. And so it just happened to be the night before Easter. And Patrick's like, far be it from me to be afraid of this Druid chieftain on the night before my Jesus rose from the dead. So Patrick goes to the top of the highest hill and he lights a bonfire. (laughs) I mean, right in your face. And all the people in the valley say, okay, uh, King, we have to put out our fires, but how come that guy up there doesn't have to put out his fire? And so the chieftain sends a bunch of men up there to kill Patrick. And the story is, right, uh, people make pilgrimages up there today And the story is that Patrick prays in a loud voice, may God come and scatter his enemies. And the guys that were coming up to get him are struck down. Sort of like, remember the story of Elijah on the hilltop praying and the, you know, King Ahab or whatever sends 50 soldiers up there and the, you know, the Lord strikes him down. And um, so finally the chieftain comes and he uh, uh, comes on bended knee and he repents and he uh, ends up converting. But there's lots of stories about Patrick. So um, some of them are more believable than others, but one was a a druid conjured up a fog, and it was so thick you couldn't see in front of your face. And Patrick said, okay, that's good. Can you dispel it, the fog? And the guy couldn't, and Patrick prays, and all of a sudden a beam of light shoots through the fog, and it dispels the... And then then the story goes on. It says, and the the druid was struck down and was burnt to death. It's like, okay... (laughs) And then the chieftain says, it is better to convert than die. It's like, okay. Um, so the, the, uh, the stories of Patrick, you know, they're sort of written a century or two after his death. And so, you know, 
But, uh, but there's lots of those stories. There's even ones where he like raises people from the dead. But um, so his prayer, the deer's cry, it's also called the breastplate of Patrick. And it traces all the way back to Patrick. And so it says, I bind into myself today the strong name of the Trinity by invocation of the same one, three and one, one and three. I bind this day to me forever by power of Christ, by power of faith, Christ's incarnation, his baptism in the Jordan River, his death on the cross for my salvation, his bursting from the spiced tomb, his riding up the heavenly way, his coming at the day of doom, I bind into myself today. I bind unto myself today the power of God to hold and lead, his eye to watch, his might to stay, his ear to hearken to my need, the wisdom of my God to teach, his hand to guide, his shield to ward, the word of God to give me speech, his heavenly host to be my guard, against all Satan's spells and wiles, against false words of heresy, against the knowledge that defiles, against the heart's idolatry, against the wizard's evil craft, against the death wound and the burning, the choking wave, the poison shaft, protect me, Christ, till thy returning. You really get a feel. I mean, it's like walking down a dark alley in an inner city at nighttime. <laughs> and it's like, okay, God, I'm trusting you. He says, Christ be with me, Christ within me, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ beside me, Christ to win me, Christ to comfort and restore me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ in quiet, Christ in danger, Christ in hearts of all that love me, Christ in mouth of friend and stranger. I bind into myself the name, the strong name of the Trinity, by invocation of the same, three in one, one in three, of whom all nature hath creation, eternal Father, Spirit, Word, praise to the God of my salvation. Salvation is of Christ the Lord. So he uses the three-leaf clover to teach the Trinity. Right? Father, Son, the Holy Ghost, three in one. And uh, he... Uh, interestingly enough, if you do a study of the New Testament and look at the little prepositions, those short connective words, to, unto, of, from, in, with, through, by, you'll find most of the time the, the sentence re is referring to God the Father, the prepositions used are to, unto, of, and from. And if the verse is referring to Jesus, most of the time, not all, but the prepositions used are by and through, and if the sentence refers to the Holy Spirit, the prepositions used are in and with. Let's look at some examples. He that doeth the will of my Father. All things are delivered unto me of my Father. Whosoever shall do the will of my Father. Come ye blessed of my Father. I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father. I came forth from the Father. Comforter whom I'll send from the Father. Pray to thy Father, which is in secret. I leave the world and go to the Father. Appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father. Then the verse is referring to Jesus. I am the door by me. If any man enter in, he shall be saved. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh unto the Father, but by me. Unto him be glory by Christ Jesus. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. But my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. But the God of all grace, who has called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus. And they and taught they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And then the Holy Spirit, prepositions comforter, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, that he dwelleth with you, and he shall be in you. You shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. 
They were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Walk in the Spirit. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if it so be that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. So I tried to figure out, okay, to and unto, of and from the Father, by and through Jesus, and in and with the Holy Spirit. So we get to see a relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I thought, how can I picture this? I'm sort of simple-minded, so I, I thought of a football game. God the Father is like the coach. It's his will that is going to take place on the field. He's in the locker room with the chalkboard, with the circles and the arrows, and he's deciding all the plays. But how does the play actually get onto the field? The quarterback. He goes to the sidelines, gets the play from the coach, and he comes onto the field. And he's dressed in the same uniform as everybody else on the field. And what is the one player that gets to speak? The quarterback. He calls the plays, right? So he's the, the word made flesh and dwelt among us. And then originally there was one player, one other player on the field, the Holy Spirit. And when the word was spoken, the Holy Spirit moved. And so you look at uh, Genesis story. It says, and God said, let there be light. And God said, let the earth bring forth. And God said, let the waters from above be separated from the water. And God said, God said, nothing was created without God saying. Well, what do you say but words? So you got God the Father, you got the spoken word, and then it says the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. And so when the word was spoken is when the Holy Spirit moved, right? Moved over the oceans and moved over, built the mountains and so forth. So you got the coach, God the Father, you got the quarterback, Jesus, you got the player, the Holy Spirit, but now we are all players on the field filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in us. Even in football games, we say, oh, they've got team spirit, right? But we have the real Holy Spirit. He is in us. And so we are carrying out the will of our coach that's communicated to us through our quarterback, Jesus, right? You like that? So we're players on the field carrying out the will of the coach that's communicated and, and Jesus is calling the plays. He's the word. Anyway, so did, did you catch all that? Did you like that? It's an interesting way to, to explain the Trinity. So you got Patrick. He does, every story talks about him chasing the, the snakes out of Ireland. Either there were snakes, which there could have been because it was warmer back then. Right? So all of Northern Europe was warmer, but then they went through what's called the Little Ice Age, and it got colder because the Vikings, you know, they settled Newfoundland, but then the whole world got colder, and they didn't have enough growing season, so they abandoned Newfoundland. So there are no snakes in Ireland today, but there, there could have been. Or it could have been referring to demons, and he chased the demons out. But there he is baptizing these Druids. And um, uh, Patrick... It's interesting, you read through his confession and he's always apologizing for being uneducated. Like, what? Yeah, he was kidnapped as a teenager before he finished his schooling, his education. And everybody else that was a church leader in that day, back in Rome, they were writing these deep theological, philosophical works on the nature of Christ and all this other kind of stuff. And he always had this inferiority complex because he didn't know all that. And, but it ended up turning out to be a good thing because he was able to communicate to the Irish people in their, at their level. 
Imagine if he went in there and he's talking Latin and Greek and Hebrew and all these people, and they're like, huh? But he's like, look, three-leaf clover, Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. They go, okay, got it, you know? And so here's his confession. Patrick the sinner, an unlearned man to be sure. I had long had it in mind to write, but up to now I have hesitated. I was afraid lest I should fall under the judgment of men's tongues because I am not as well-read as others. As a youth, nay, almost as a boy, not able to speak, I was taken captive. Hence today I blush and fear exceedingly to reveal my lack of education. Isn't it interesting how mighty men and women of God always have a feeling of inadequacy? You know, one time I uh, was getting ready to speak and it's like, oh God, I don't have it together. I don't know what I'm going to say. And, and it's, you know, you, you know what it's like, Pastor. Sometimes you're, and, and, um, and the Lord spoke to my heart and says, great, now I can use you. In other words, if you feel like you really, really got it together, you're trusting in yourself. And when you don't have it all together, you're stepping out in faith. And guess what? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. He loves to use us when we don't feel like we're adequate. Right? Uh, if they were to carve anything on the gravestone uh, for me, it would be, it's not ability, it's availability. Look, you just make yourself available. He'll add whatever ability that you need. Anyway, um, the Druids. Now, they were the, the pagan superstitious priests, and they wandered around teaching their superstitious law, and they would chop off heads. They'd use goblets of skulls for drinking out of. They'd they have shrunken heads hanging from their belt. I mean, they were druids. And uh, when they got saved, uh, they shed all that. But when they went around, they didn't just say the pagan Irish laws. They sang them. That was how they would do it. Sort of like, you know, the Indians, you know, but they, they would sing, but they sang in Irish. But once they become Christian, they end up singing in choirs. And they seriously sang in choirs. Like they would get a hundred men together and they would sing praise songs at the top of their lungs and it would echo through the valley. And they played harps. And it says that the angels would bend down and listen when the Irish choirs sang. And so the harp became the symbol for Christian Ireland. And, um, and Patrick had a bell, and he'd ring it when he would walk through an area. And um, so um, anyway, uh, there's the first ruins of one of the first churches he had. And, and so this is the accusation that caused him to have to write his confession. He goes, and when I was attacked by a number of my seniors who came forth and brought up my sins against my laborious episcopate, on that day, indeed, I was struck so that I might have fallen now and for eternity. But the Lord graciously spared the stranger and sojourner for his name and came mightily to help in this affliction. Verily, not slight was the shame and blame that fell upon me. I ask God that it may not be reckoned to them as sin. As for the proceedings against me, they found, after 30 years, a confession I had made before I was a deacon. In the anxiety of my troubled mind, I confided to my dearest friend what I had done in my boyhood one day when I was then 15 years old and I did not believe in the living God. You know, you're doing work for the Lord and you get attacks on the outside and you get attacks on the inside. Here's Jesus. He's facing the Pharisees and the Sadducees and he has a Judas wanting to plot to betray him on the inside. 
Read the story of the revolution. There's George Washington fighting the British. There's people plotting to have him kicked out as the, as the general in the Continental Congress. They're like plotting to replace him with, you know, somebody else. So you're always going to have that, right? That's just part of the way it works, that, that you trust the Lord. The devil's going to try to attack you every way, but he's always going to deliver you. The Lord will always deliver you. So Patrick dies, uh, and he's buried at Down Patrick. So it's an easy place to remember because that's where he went down. Um, and uh, <laughs> they don't have his, um, his, his actual grave, but they do have a big rock that they think was, was near where he was buried. And CBN's coming out with a, a movie about Patrick, which I recommend everybody go see. And um, so he dies around 465 A.D., and then somebody writes a history of him in the 600s, and then in the 800s. Around the 1200s um, is somebody named Jocelyn, and Jocelyn publishes a book, uh, The Life and Acts of St. Patrick, the Archbishop, Primate and Apostle Ireland. Now, the printing press is not invented until 1452, so all these books are handwritten. And uh, so in this life of Patrick, again, it's written in the 12th century, so quite a few years are in between, but it's but some of the chapters, uh, it says, of his journey and his manifold miracles. Chapter 69, the sick man cured. Chapter 71, the dead are raised. The king and the people are converted. Chapter 78, 19 men are raised by St. Patrick from the dead. Uh, king Ichu raised from the dead. A man of gigantic stature is revived from death. Another man who was buried raised again. A boy who was torn to pieces by swine restored to life, you know, so forth. So a lot of the stories of Patrick are miraculous. Now, uh, you think, well, there's a lot of centuries in between. Was it embellished over time? It could have been, but it, usually there's some kind of truth that's, that's down that starts it all. And we do know that he was very courageous and uh, believed in miracles. So uh, then uh, after he dies, uh, they, he, he started 300 churches. He baptized like 120,000 people. I remember I got an old world book encyclopedia. It says he found Ireland heathen and left it Christian. And they would, uh, these churches that he built were communities. And so the people got rid of their pagan laws. Okay, no more head chopping off stuff. Um, and so they would go to Patrick and say, how do we do the government? The government, how do we do the government? He goes, okay. He takes some of the Bible laws. He takes some of the Latin laws and he salvages what Irish laws that he could. He puts it together. It's called the Code of Patrick. And it has in there that we get our rights. We're all made in the image of God. We get our rights from God. Well, when the Irish missionaries in the next century went back to Europe and went back to England, they took the Code of Patrick with them. And then they evangelized all of Britain and the Code of Patrick became common and it became the basis for English common law. It was codified in the 800s by Alfred the Great. Uh, codified means it's actually written down. And, uh, and then the Vikings take over England with William the Conqueror in 1066. And so he wants to make it a top-down pyramid structure. I'm the king, you do what I say. But all the people are like, no, 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 we get rights from God. And it comes all the way back to Patrick, the Code of Patrick. So this tug-of-war in England between the king and the common people, the parliament, right, it finally is the Magna Carta where they forced the king to sign it. But it all goes back to the Code of Patrick. And American law is drawn from English common law. So lo and behold, Patrick even influenced the laws that we have today. Imagine that. You know, you think of it. 
What would you and I have to do to have people remember you 1,600 years in the future? To actually have a date on the calendar where every year they remember you 1,600 years in the future. Here we are remembering this guy that lived 1,600 years ago. Anyway, so they build these communities with walls and little stone huts and then a chapel. And then they would have, what's that? A tower with a door way above the ground. And they would have a, a ladder, wooden ladder. And they would store food and water in this tower. And when the Vikings would attack, they would ring the church bell. Everybody would run up the ladder. They would pull the ladder up behind them. And they would be in there while the Vikings trashed everything. Like sort of like the vandals, right? They would just go through and rummage and trash everything. And after a couple days or a week or so of them trashing it, they'd get tired and they'd leave and they'd get back on their boats. And the tower you could see real far away. Are you sure they're gone? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see them. They're gone. And they would put the ladder down. They'd all climb down and they'd, they'd clean up the mess, you know? And, um, and so there's like one of the towers left. And so after Patrick dies, one of the guys that uh, was a Christian was Columba, which means dove. And so now you have Christian Ireland, and he uh, sneaks into a neighboring castle and borrows a book of Psalms, sneaks back into his castle, and he spends a year hand copying it. And then he sneaks the original back in there, puts it back. But the word spread. And so the king of the original castle, he says, I want that copy. You copied my book. It's my book. I want it. Well, the other king says, no, 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 this isn't your book. This is our book. And it starts a war, and 3,000 people die. And this Columba gets so upset at himself because he thought it was something good, and it turns into all these people dying, that he voluntarily, voluntarily banishes himself to the little island of Iona. Now, they still have a page of what he copied, and uh, they would... Um, march it around their army before they would go to battle and so forth. And um, that's, uh, again, Columba. So this is the little island of Iona. He lived off of clams off the beach. He built little stone huts and built a community. And lo and behold, other guys would come. And these, they were so pious, they would recite all 150 psalms every single day by memory. And then they sent missionaries back to the Scots and the Picts in Britain, and there are stories that the king wouldn't open his gates of his castle. And you'd get these hundred Irish missionaries and they would sing at the top of their voices and the doors of the castle would fly open. That's the stories that are passed down. And then one of them was uh, a guy named, look at these uh, little places where they lived. And then look at that island there that's uh, called, uh, that's a, a little monastery up there built so the Vikings couldn't get it. Here's a little narrow stairway that goes up there. They call it the, the stairway to heaven, and then there's the eye of the needle. Anyway, so these Irish missionaries would then go back to Britain. You know how they did their missionary work? They would go down to the coast and get in a little dinghy boat and raise the sail, and wherever the wind blew them, they figured that was where the Holy Spirit wanted them to go as a missionary. Oh, I'm called to be a missionary. Well, where are you going? I don't know yet. Depends which way the wind's blowing that day. <laughs> One of the Irish missionaries was St. Brendan. He was blown way to the west, and nobody saw him for seven years. When he comes back, he describes this area with big, tall pine trees and everything. He, it sounds like he's describing North America. And so St. Brendan is considered possibly the first one to discover North America. And he has all these stories. And one of them was he um, ran into a rock in the middle of the ocean, 
And he gets out and he begins to have, a, you know, a little church service on the rock and it starts moving. And it's almost the back of a whale. And so he jumps back in the boat. So you see a lot of pictures of St. Brendan on the top of a boat. Anyway, another one is Columbanus, and he starts over 100 missions across Europe. I was in Cologne, Germany, big cathedral. You go into the basement where they do excavations, and lo and behold, they find Irish artifacts. So this big church was started by an Irish missionary. And so here's, here's the pictures of St. Brendan, and you always see him with a fish. And, uh, you know, there's the on top of the fish, and... <laughs> You know, and, and here, here, uh, here they are having church service on top of the fish. It sort of gets embellished as the time goes on. And, and then there's St. Bridget, a woman in, in Ireland, and she starts all these monasteries and cathedrals. And, um, and there's the, the Code of Patrick, and there's uh, uh, Alfred the Great who codifies it, turns it into a written law. And um, anyway, so um, there's a lot more there. But it's, it's all in my books uh, that I don't have time to go into. But, um, and then the Irish missionaries come, to, the Irish come to America in two waves. During the colonial phase, um, Britain took the, the uh, Scots and moved them to Northern Ireland. And then there's a famine, so they came to America, so they're called Scots-Irish. And, uh, so about, and then you have the Catholics were in Ireland and the Anglicans in the 1600s, uh, ca captured and sold a whole lot of them into slavery. And, um, and so they were another wave of Irish that came to America. And uh, anyway, there's an Irish cathedral in New York. It was the big St. Patrick's Cathedral. And they have their Irish parades and so forth. A um, lot more history there. But uh, I go through the, the Irish. And that's, that's my mother-in-law and that's my wife. See, so I got Irish. There's my daughter and there's my other daughter with Clarence Thomas. And... Um, but so here's Patrick. I bind unto myself today the strong name of the Trinity by invocation of the same three and one, one and three, of whom all nature hath creation, eternal Father, Spirit, Word, praise to the God of my salvation. Salvation is of Christ the Lord. So that's what we remember, a godly man that inspires us. And so sometimes you can have a tragedy happen in your life, right? Kidnapped as a kid and then have to be with a bunch of pagan people that are chopping heads off. I mean, a tragedy. But he didn't let that stop him. And then he's older and he has a dream that he wants to be used by the Lord. And he steps out and he does something nobody ever done before. You're going to go back to that heathen place and witness to those people that imprisoned you before and treated you bad before? And then he ends up having confidence and boldness where he confronts the Druids and Lo and behold, he found Ireland heathen, left it Christian. Right? And here we are still talking about him 1,600 years later. You know, God has a plan for you. God loves to wait until things look hopeless. And then he raises up little nobodies who are small in their own eyes, but big in faith and courage. You need to know, too, that what happened in Ireland um, after Patrick, the next couple hundred years, they collected most of the libraries from the West. They ended up becoming one of the great world libraries, and we'll, most of the vandals and goths and whatever were burning all of the treasures and all of the uh, wisdom from, uh, th that had been acquired over the centuries. The Irish uh, preserved all of that in a very real way. They became the scholars. So from this humble man, Patrick, they became the ones that began to educate 
and preserve a lot of the riches of Christianity. Isn't that amazing? And I, I want to I say something about Patrick. I mean, here's a guy. Uh, I love what Bill said. God takes a nobody. God takes somebody who says, how can you use me? Maybe the Lord is speaking to you this morning. Maybe God is saying something to you. Maybe he's saying, uh, I can make a difference to your life. And when we think things are the most hopeless, God breaks through by the light of his power. Isn't that true? So sometimes we look around us and a lot of people want to make things look dark and, and whatever. But I've got to tell you, I, I think God has a plan and a purpose and design in every age. So this is a good word to us. Father, I just want to thank you that in every age you are faithful. Even when everything seems to be falling apart like it was in Rome, you capture the heart of a young man who is a slave, 16 years old, and plant seeds in his heart that later come to fruition. God, in every age, you have a purpose and a design, and you are at work. And I know, Lord, that you are speaking to people, even in our midst today. You're saying, have the courage that Patrick had to step out, to go out wherever uh, the Father is calling. And Lord, we just want to lay our lives down before you. Uh, It doesn't matter what age you are. It doesn't matter where you are. If you abandon yourselves to God, he can use you in a powerful way. And that's part of that message of Patrick. We thank you, God, for your faithfulness. And we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.